Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome back Dr. Lena Haji, who was also on an episode earlier in the season, which I recommend you check out. But she's a licensed clinical psychologist and mental health counselor specializing in psychodiagnostic assessment, forensic assessment, dual diagnosis, severe and persistent mental illness, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and substance abuse treatment. Her clinical experience over the last 20 years includes working with mentally ill and dually diagnosed adults in inpatient and outpatient settings, including correctional facilities, substance abuse rehabilitation centers, outpatient clinics, psychiatric hospitals, and private practice in four states, including New York, New Jersey, California, and Florida. Her ultimate goal as a psychologist, regardless of population, is to accurately diagnose and identify patient strengths and areas for growth to individualize treatment needs and goals. She was trained at the master's and doctoral levels in assessing and treating individuals ranging from mild psychiatric symptoms to those with severe and persistent mental illness, duly diagnosed patients, personality disordered patients, and psychopathy. In this episode, we talk about the challenges with diagnosing disorders because of the comorbidity overlap between various disorders and why practitioners must exercise caution when working with clients. We also touch on some of the challenges with mental health work due to the lack of funding and attention and how people in lower economic situations are impacted the most and do not have the means to seek help. Please check out Dr. Haji's page on Instagram and her website. Her Instagram is at rise underscore psychological underscore services. And her website is risepsychological.com. And if at the end of the episode, you could leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. Uh, all right, Lena, welcome back to the Easy Conversations podcast. Always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I always learn a lot when we do talk and i feel like this is a great um i guess almost a sequel to our previous episode but um yeah excited to have you here uh do you i know we've done one episode before where you did introduce yourself but i just want to give you an opportunity again to talk a little bit about what it is that you do and and where you're based just for listeners that may have not heard the first episode yeah, absolutely. And um, as usual, thanks for having me. I I think um, you're a great interviewer, and I, it's it's always an honor when I'm asked to you know be on a podcast or anything. Um, so my name is Dr. Lena Haji, and I am a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Florida. I practice mostly forensic psychology, um, so that's really applying clinical knowledge to a legal question, a lot of court evaluations. I worked in prisons at the bachelor's level, at the master's level, at the doctoral level, on and off for 20 years. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Here I am ready to answer and talk about mental health all day. And plus it's World Mental Health Day. So that's pretty awesome. Yes, yes. I do see irony though. We need one day a year for it, right? I that, see irony too. And there was like mental suicide prevention month. And it's like, shouldn't we be focused on suicide prevention all the time? I don't really subscribe to these days, but I did happen to see that. So yay us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a good start. Let's put it that it's way. A, it's a good start. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess focus of the conversation and, and just to give listeners a bit of a flavor, what inspired me to reach out to you again was my own kind of schooling, uh, just did a recent course on psychopathology and realized that I don't know a lot and um, also realized that, you know, our first episode we covered uh, misdiagnosis, but then there's this huge issue around not being able to diagnose properly or, or a lot of the overlap within the disorders uh, and the comorbidities within the specific one that I came across was BPD and anxiety and depression often because you know a lot of these disorders fall on a spectrum and people not being able to properly gauge what the symptoms are and and what would you know uh be something a person would be experiencing in terms of borderline personality disorder i'll throw it over to you uh give you, <laughs> share your thoughts and then we can kind of go back and forth on that so yeah i think the first most important piece to put out there is that diagnosis is obviously just one piece of the puzzle and actually diagnosis per the dsm-5 tr um was really the reason diagnosis exists was really for professionals to talk to each other so it was really for you know your primary care doctor to have a way to conceptualize a cluster of symptoms over to the psychiatrist, over to the therapist, over to the case manager, right? So when you look at a diagnosis, people often say, well, diagnoses are judgments or they're labels or they put people in a box. And it's like, yes, but that doesn't mean it captures the entire individual. It's just a really a way for other medical and mental health professionals to communicate something rapidly. Mm -hmm. So I've never met two people with borderline personality disorder who present exactly the same or bipolar or schizophrenia. So I think that's one piece that's important to clear up that diagnosis is just one piece of the puzzle. That being said, I find misdiagnosis to be really rampant among every level, you know, master's level clinicians, doctoral level, psychiatrists. I, I find it's really pretty bad in my opinion. Um, and so I think that's because people don't take the time to read the DSM-5 or the ICD, whichever one you're using, they're very similar, and to really focus on the diagnostic criteria, especially with a disorder like borderline personality disorder, which like you mentioned, has so much com comorbidity. Of course, anxiety is a part of BPD. Of course, depression is a part of BPD. So then your next question is, what's the difference? Or do they have both? Or do they have all three? and and really kind of narrowing it down um so i don't i i hope that makes sense from yeah. a diagnostic perspective yeah absolutely and even in the dsm-5 within the symptoms i mean you almost have to be presenting those symptoms on a consistent basis and i think they classify is it a week or two weeks i'm just going based on memory i think you need to be presenting the symptoms consistently for i think there's a certain duration Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the other thing. There's time criteria. So for personality disorders, it's usually six months. It's a pervasive pattern. You know, I don't even know if it's the, the, the six months, but it's it's a pervasive pattern. It's character logical. It's ingrained in your personality. That's very different from a psychiatric disorder, which tends to be even if they're chronic, like schizophrenia or bipolar, they tend to be more episodic. So that's the first thing when it comes to personality disorders, people need to understand that it's what the name says it's ingrained in your personality it's character logical it's who you are which is why typically they are harder to treat 
Um, whereas a psychiatric disorder, what they used to call axis one versus axis two, is more episodic and more fluid in its presentation. So that's one way to differentiate, um, you know, a psychiatric disorder from a personality disorder, let's say bipolar versus uh, borderline. Right, right. And and again, with anxiety and depression is also thrown around quite a bit. Um, you can have mild forms of it, again, on the spectrum. Um, and, and that's where it becomes challenging, right? So what are some things you can recommend to people that may be experiencing bouts of it or, or feel like they may be uh, suffering with the symptoms? Is it obviously, obviously it's going to an expert, but what are you looking for when, when you try to identify that within yourself? So, um, I, yes, of course, never self-diagnose. Self-diagnosis is, is, is pretty dangerous for m m multiple reasons. But if you're feeling off, if you're feeling overwhelmed, stressed out, you're, you're seeing something different. Um, I would, I would, I would say these things when you go to present your case, so to speak to a mental health professional, I would focus on when was the onset? Try to think back, when did you first start feeling like this? And sometimes that's hard for us to do. Or well, some people say, I've always been depressed, or I don't know, I was an adolescent, or you know, it's hard to pinpoint. But really try and think of the date of onset. Then try and think about the frequency. So let's say you're feeling anxious, is it more days than not? So for example, generalized anxiety disorder, which is one of the anxiety disorders, it actually has in it uh, feeling worry and difficulty worrying more days than not. So that's kind of vague, right? But then you have to think, well, if it's a week, have I felt pretty anxious four out of seven? You know, really try to think about that. Also think about intensity. So think of everything, you know, this is how we quantify things. This mm -hmm. is how we get to a place where we can give a diagnosis. And there are obviously, you know, psychologists can give objective measures and questionnaires and assessments for this purpose, which is why we do that to kind of differentiate are you kind of just stressed out because of external triggers are you just kind of a worrier or do you actually have some pathology here that would warrant some kind of treatment mm -hmm. so onset frequency intensity um look for triggers things that make it worse things that make it better all of those kinds of um additional information is always helpful to give the provider when they're trying to narrow down a diagnosis Right, right. And and uh, the same thing could apply to depression, right? And again, the pro the reason I cringe is because these terms that become part of our normal language, right? Like the amount of people I hear saying, oh, I'm depressed or I get depressed doing this. Um, yeah, I, I, it just makes me cringe because I'm like, well, no, you're not. You're not depressed. Yeah, yeah. Well, it drives me nuts. And I literally have this like, like, by my side at all times and i think that's a, a trend we're seeing where young people particularly because of social media are over pathologizing themselves you know you hear people using clinical terms all out of context so in one respect it's like yay we're battling stigma we're talking about mental health it's coming to the forefront which is fantastic and it's important but there's always going to be a flip side to something something coming out in the light which is misinformation so mm -hmm. i hear young kids saying you know i'm trauma bonding i'm triggered i'm codependent i he's toxic and i'm like oh gosh like why are you pathologizing everything? I think also we need to realize that 
feeling off or feeling different or feeling up high, low, those are part of the normal human experience. Yeah. necessarily mean you're sick or you're bipolar or you're you know and that's the danger in self-diagnosing or just kind of reading something online and then running with it and that's what i'm seeing a lot of like you mentioned major depressive disorder has three specifiers now it has mild moderate and severe and so how can somebody say that you know they're mildly depressed moderately depressed severely depressed well if you go to our book which is used by mental health professionals there are there's diagnostic criteria and specifiers for you to meet a certain uh for you to meet diagnostic criteria and Mm -hmm. i agree i think people i'm so depressed or i just had a panic attack it's like let me tell you something panic attacks are so incredibly debilitating yeah they're so horrible as somebody who has suffered from panic attacks and used to drive herself to the emergency room on a regular basis I can promise you that that little spike of endorphins or a little worry that you had for five minutes was not a panic attack. So I'm with you on that. The the over pathologizing, yeah. it's just it's it's not good because we're erasing the normal human experience, which is to feel differently all the time. Yeah. Oh, 100 percent. And and I think there's uh, it's very subjective too, right? Like because I may have a stressful life. I'm probably able to deal with stressors a lot better than someone who's not exposed to a lot of stress. So does that mean like I'm not capable of being feeling depressed or stuff like that? Um, I agree with you. And and I guess having these conversations are important to, to identify that, which kind of leads me into <laughs> my next question, because obviously I, I saw your video recently about uh, <laughs> bipolar disorder and, and Kanye West and and not using often these disorders or or even the symptoms as an excuse for her, our behavior right and and i don't want to focus on connie because he's probably a, a whole different case study on his own but right. just not excusing our behavior and and then using you know saying oh i have this disorder and, and trying to get away with it i suppose yeah absolutely i mean that is one of my biggest pet peeves especially since i've worked with criminals my whole life you know um seeing them you know the odds of a psychiatric disorder directly causing like egregious behavior is so slim like you think of like andrea yates who was schizophrenic and drowned her children you know Mm -hmm. a psychotic episode she firmly believed and this is through psychological testing, hours and hours of evaluation, objective measure, collateral interviews. I mean, you know, to get to this conclusion, this woman genuinely believed that she was, uh, from what I understand, that she was saving her children from the devil by, by, by drowning them. That is so rare and it's so like zero, zero, zero percent or whatever it is that anybody else, you know, blaming your mental health um, or a, a psychiatric disorder for your actions is it's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying they're not, there aren't contributory factors and, and different, everybody's multifaceted. And like you pointed out, some people are raised in conditions where I don't know there's chronic poverty or there's there, you know, I have a lot of my patients, they, they don't even realize they have PTSD. They've been subjected to so many shootings and so much violence and so much death that they've normalized it and so their paranoia and their hypervigilance and their flashbacks to them are normal and it's like wait a second 
You know, why do you not get the help you need? Because for you and your neighborhood, that was considered normal. So I digress, but there are so yeah. many factors that you have to look at before you diagnose somebody. You know, the diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 is just one part of it. But yeah, I'm seeing a lot of people say, you know, well, I, I, I lied to you because, you know, I was anxious or I was insecure or I was depressed or I was whatever. And it's like, no, uh, things don't make you lie. You lie because you wanted to lie. That's just one example, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's not an excuse. We have to be, plus as providers in terms of on the treatment side, not just the evaluative diagnostic side, by co-signing people's crap, we're, we're helping to enabling, enable them. That's what people yeah. don't understand. Therapy is not fun and happy. Therapy sometimes is hard and it's holding people accountable. And by holding patients accountable, they might hate you, they might dislike you, but how else are they supposed to get better if we still keep co-signing their stuff? Well, yeah, it's not your fault. You're bipolar. It's not your fault. You're depressed. It's not. Well, how do people get better? You know, coddling yeah. versus treatment is another one of my big pet peeves because I see that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. And, and I think what I've at least noticed and based on the research I've come across is is the mental health often is uh, goes unnoticed in, in low income pop in the low income population. And it, it gets obviously gets compounded and, and you know, it, it it's almost a, a perpetual cycle in, in that population. Whereas, you know, higher income, it's almost like a privilege to go seek therapy and, and, and ask for help because you can afford it. Right. So, right. so there's that issue as well. That's not really talked about. And unfortunately what I, and you know, just even from personal experience seeing like therapy is not really affordable uh, for, for people. Um, and, and then insurance companies do a really poor job of, of covering it too, which is a separate issue on its own. But what do you see in, in the line of work, especially in, 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 you know, the prison system and all that, like, I'm sure it's something more profound there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, for one, I made a video actually on how, cause I was seeing, uh, mental health professionals getting attacked for not making uh, treatment affordable. And it was like, we're, we're like the frontline people. We get the attack, but it's systemic. It's systemic, it's insurance companies, it's capitalism, it's the fact that um, mental health and medical health is for profit. So by by attacking the frontline people and saying like, you should make therapy more affordable, it's like, wait, wait a second, I have to pay my rent and I have school loans and all this other stuff. But like you said, that's a whole nother topic. Um, but so many of my inmates, I call them my inmates, but my, my, my patient inmates, you know, they, the first time they come in contact with mental health treatment is once they're, once they're locked up. Yeah. And some of these stories, it's like, if they had just gotten the help prior, they might not have gotten locked up. They might not have gotten to their, that point. And I'm not saying that I'm excusing their behaviors, but I'm saying, you know, there's a multitude of factors, like you said, and they compound. There's the poverty and then the substance abuse and then the absent parents or the domestic abuse or this or that, you know, try, nobody at school has any resources. There's no school counselor because they can't afford one. And round and round and round we go. And then they end up in jail. And it's like, you're telling me this is the first time that you're talking to a mental health professional? Mm -hmm. But of course, it's the, it's the school to prison pipeline. Like, of course, you ended up here. You know, and by that time, I'm not going to say it's too late because I firmly believe in rehabilitation and changing someone's life. But 
you know, now they have a record and, and now they're locked up and they're separated from their families. And then just round and round we go, you know, this perpetuating this cycle of, of insanity, really. Yeah. I, I mean, and to your point, there is hope in that regard too, but often like once you're in the system, you can't just go out into the real world and get a job and be accepted by society because to your point, you have that record, right? So so I can appreciate how it might be tough and, and to your point, it just continues, right? Um, uh, and, and I don't know what the solution is because often what you see is where, where there is therapy that's affordable, often the quality isn't great, right? So- yeah. Oh, okay. So I was just having this discussion with uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Mack. Um, so what I, in especially in the prisons that I've worked in, which are privatized, so literally for profit, which is what I wrote my dissertation on, but I digress again. Um, they hire unlicensed people. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with unlicensed people. We all have to be unlicensed at one point, but unlicensed people for high risk populations is maybe not the best uh, solution. Unlicensed, very scared, very green people with no guidance. That's the problem. These these green students or young people, they might have the, the great intentions, but they need supervision. They need a strong leader. And, and the caseloads are insane. You know, I had 15 therapists working under me when I was the clinical director of a prison here in Florida, and their caseload was like 150 inmates. It's like, how does wow. one master's level therapist handle 150 inmates? You don't. You literally go to the cell and say, are you suicidal? Are you homicidal? No. Next. Are you suicidal? Are you homicidal? No. Next. You know, like it's risk management. It's not therapy. It's not treatment. Um, so there's that component. And then you have, um, you know, <laughs> I hate to admit it, but we've had uh, medical doctors who have had their licenses revoked in the community who are now working in prison because it's the only place they can work. Mm -hmm. uh, why is your, if your license is revoked, why are you practicing anywhere? Yeah. <laughs> why are in subhuman that they get an unlicensed, excuse me, not an unlicensed, a revoked licensed practitioner. Oh, well it's a uh, under, they, they have it. The, the way they manage to do that is they call them underserved populations. And so they take these, egregious practitioners who shouldn't be practicing anywhere and they assign them to inmates yeah and so like you said they're getting the bottom of the barrel treatment if you can even call it treatment because it's really just risk management it's really mm -hmm. just we don't get sued for suicides and homicides that's it yeah yeah so i mean i mean without going too far down the rabbit hole like what is the solution that like do you have any ideas because uh, i mean it is obviously an issue that's just continuing to get worse, right? Yeah, it's continuing to get worse. And just because it, mental health has a lot of hoopla and recognition on social media, doesn't mean the core of the problems are being addressed. Um, so I have a friend who was a principal at a school and uh, in an inner city. And so it's, they had a budget for mental health. So it was like, great, this is what we do. This is what I, this is what we're proposing. Start early, get there, get a school psychologist, more than one preferably, counselors, groups, edu psychoeducation for these young kids. And so he was all excited about starting that process until they told him his budget was $1,200 for one year for 500 students. <laughs> so like, I mean, an evaluation from a psychologist costs more than $1,200. How are yeah. you providing treatment to 500 students in an urban city school over the course of a year for 1200 Like, what are you supposed to do with $1,200? So 
the first the, to me the first the first solution is allocating resources allocating mm -hmm. resources um because if these kids in these schools did have a counselor to speak to somebody to go to about domestic abuse the fact that their mothers might be on drugs or the fact that their fathers might be on drugs or the fact that they are they're subjected to chronic poverty or they're not eating or they they have seen eight million shootouts in their neighborhood if they have no one to talk to about that stuff you know, age eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, we can guess the outcome. It's, yeah. it's setting them up for failure. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, again, you, you kind of alluded to it earlier, capitalism, but it's not something we can solve, uh, unfortunately easily and, and not something, um, yeah, it's not talked about unfortunately either. Right. So, so that's becoming a huge problem, but, uh, getting back on course i i did want <laughs> no this is good this is good um i did want to also talk about and we touched on it offline but the the issues around bpd and bipolar disorder and how the two get confused because that's something i recently came across as well um and just for context i was writing a paper on bipolar disorder and and one of the things i came across in the research and i want to you know get your thoughts on it too is is how um I think it's the difference between the manic episodes as well and and how uh people experiencing bipolar disorder respond to medication versus people with uh borderline personality disorder that also differentiates it but if you're not you know if you're going in blindly and, and you just completely miss the mark on that how do you even know that your clients responding appropriately or or you've kind of misdiagnose them from that perspective right so bipolar and borderline is my is, sing, is probably single-handedly my biggest pet peeve and has always been because they always get confused and it's a little bit understandable because of the mood liability right the the good mood bad mood so here's the way that i try to explain it uh in concise terms so first of all borderline personality disorder people think bpd is just cutters right people who cut and people who self um self injure in in one way or another and while that is one of the symptoms that's not really the core of, of borderline personality disorder the core of borderline personality disorder is this chronic fear of abandonment whether it's real or imagined. So you have this very push-pull interpersonal style. It's it's pretty hard to work with borderline patients. Um, some people are really good at it and really enjoy it and other people just can't do it. So they will idealize you and then they'll, they'll rip you down. I, you're my favorite therapist. Two days later, I hate you. You're the worst therapist ever. And it's this very, there's a book called uh, Fuck You, Don't Leave Me. Excuse my uh, cursing, but yeah. it's about uh, borderline personality disorder and that's exactly what it is. They, this real, or imagined chronic fear of abandonment, usually stemming from stemming from trauma. So mm. this is, you know, your 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 Tasmanian devil kind of interpersonal person, moodiness. I love you. I hate you. I can't stand to be alone. Self injury, depression, anxiety, kind of temper tantrums, fits. That's borderline. Bipolar is completely different. Bipolar is organic. That's the first thing. Bipolar borderline is a personality disorder. So again an ingrained characterological part of their personality. Bipolar disorder is neurological, it's organic. It's literally, mm -hmm. there's a misfiring, you know, in, I mean, neuro is not my my strong suit clearly, but it's 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 treated with medication. It's, it's 
and and it involves it involves manic episodes. Manic episodes are not mood swings. Manic episodes are discrete periods of four days to two weeks where this person literally does not need sleep. They can right. be for four days and they're not tired they engage in high risk activities they tend to take on new tasks they tend to have um grandiose ideas sometimes they have psychotic symptoms they're so manic that they hear start hear a voice heart start hearing voices you know they're grandiose they're impulsive they literally are not tired it's like somebody being on cocaine for four days and they not not functioning and then they typically dip into super right. depression, right? Yeah. And that, that's usually the high risk area for suicide when they're dipping because mania is enjoyable. They're euphoric, they're out there yeah. and then dip into depression. So I don't know if the way I just explained that makes sense, but they're very different, very, very right. different. Manic episodes and hypomanic episodes, which are kind of mania on a smaller scale are very different from a character logical person who's doing this kind of push pull abandonment fear. Um, but people think that bipolar is just mood swings or borderline is just mood swings. So anybody who has mood swings, they just write. And so going to your question about medication, bipolar disorder, the first line of treatment is medication because it's neurological. So you have to address the chemicals in the brain in order to stabilize them. So you right. have lithium, you have Depakote, you have mood stabilizers, whereas borderline personality disorder, the treatment of choice for that is dialectical behavior therapy, which is kind of teaching them to sit in the comfort, addressing cognitive distortions, behavioral activation, mindfulness, two completely different treatments. You yeah. know, those get mixed up all the time. Huge pet peeve. Huge. Well, the other differentiation is also delusions, right? Like for bipolar uh, disorder, people do have uh, a lot of delusions as well. And and to your point, if, if you by accident give someone with BPD medication, that's probably not the right approach, right? Especially if you're misdiagnosing them. Yeah, I mean, borderline, severe borderlines tend to be on medications. They can also sometimes also be on mood stabilizers. Obviously, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't speak to the exact mood stabilizers and, and the dosage and all that kind of stuff. But typically, the mood stabilizers for borderlines are to, you know, to address that kind of mood liability and the suicidal behavior um, to keep them from self-harming. Whereas with bipolar patients, it's literally to address the mania and, and the depression. So again, yeah, mood stabilizers, you might give them to both patients, but, um, and again, I defer to psychiatry for that, but it's, it's very, they're very different disorders. I don't even, you know, if you really sit down and look at the DSM or the ICD, or you really study them, you realize they don't have that much in common. But people think bipolar is, you know, people make jokes like, um, what I what I used to hear a lot from my patients like, yo, you know, I used to wake up in the morning. I think I'm bipolar. And I would say, what makes you say that? And well, I wake up in the morning and I'm in a good mood, you know what I'm saying? And then like in the afternoon, if my girlfriend doesn't write me, like then I get super angry and I'm just I go nuts. And it's like, okay, sir, that's called life. Like that's not any kind of disorder. That's low frustration tolerance. You're mad because your girlfriend didn't write you. But yeah, you know, people make jokes like, oh, she flipped out on me or my girlfriend went crazy. She's bipolar. And it's like, nope, that's not what that is. That's not bipolar at all. Right, right. Yeah. And and like we discussed at the beginning, there's a lot of symptoms you have to check off. There's a time constraint on it, too. It's not simply something that because and, and the other part to it all, as, as you've alluded to in your examples here, is is very subjective, right? Just because someone is mistreating you or you don't like the way 
you're being treated doesn't mean they're probably suffering from some disorder. Yeah, right. So that's the other new, everyone's a narcissist now. Have you seen that? Yeah. Everyone's a narcissist? Yeah. yeah. So it's like my boyfriend cheated on me. He's a narcissist. I was gaslighted or I was lied to. I was it's like, no, no, no. Like he's an asshole, but he's not a narcissist. Like narcissistic personality disorder. I literally just checked this when I made a video a couple weeks ago. Um, community samples in the DSM research, empirical science data shows that people who meet criteria for narcissistic personality disorder in community samples was something like 1.4%. Yeah. It's really low to yeah. have that. I mean, people can have traits of narcissism. You can have narcissistic traits. You can have a big ego. You can be self-centered. But to actually have narcissistic personality disorder, like it's very, it's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, so just and it, again, someone doesn't mean they're a narcissist. Well, and again, it's it's on a spectrum, right? And and in our last episode, we did cover NPD, but we didn't talk about the spectrum side of it. Where on one end, as as you mentioned, someone can have a big ego and can be self centered, and uh, but then on the other end, they can also not represent those qualities and still have narcissistic tendencies, where they're seeking sympathy or attention, and that's often not really talked about. Totally. I think every human can be manipulative to some extent. You know, I'm sure yeah. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. There are times yeah, where of course. people have lied or cheated or they they've treated somebody badly or, you know, they've they've like you said, they've sought pity um, in a kind of a manipulative manner. So, yeah. yeah, and that's the other thing, like pathology, like you said, is on a spectrum. I've had extremely, you know, chronically very ill schizophrenic patients. And I've had schizophrenic patients who hear voices every now and then. You've had hard, I've had horribly narcissistic psychopathic patients that you're like, okay, this person need not be in society. And then you have some people that are narcissistic, but they still manage to kind of function and have relationships. And so that's again where people don't understand that just because they meet diagnostic criteria doesn't mean we don't still have to individualize the person. Every single patient is different, every single one. I don't think you or I have ever had a patient that's maybe similar, but that presents exactly the same. It's just, it's not the way humans work. Yeah, oh, 100%. And, and I think that's what, you know, just from this conversation, hopefully people can realize it's so complicated, right? And And even for like professionals like yourself, to say that you know it's not easy and and you have to look for many many things and every client can present themselves differently that should be telling for people that are potentially diagnosing without any real qualifications so so that's the other absolutely. thing i hope people realize absolutely and also not to be dismissive you know and even even the the best most objective professionals can be dismissive you know i've been guilty of it oh well he's borderline so you know he goes over there or well that guy's bipolar he just needs just give him meds you know um it's more than that people are are multifaceted multi-dimensional you know and and if even the most educated and objective or you know seasoned experienced clinicians can be dismissive then imagine what non-credentialed you know joe schmo life coach is saying about you know people and i'm not let, let me back up life coaches they have their place um but you know it's dangerous when people go into territory that they're not supposed to go into case in point like I can talk about how mood stabilizers are the way to go for both borderline and bipolar, but I know I know better to say I'm gonna 
I'm going to refer that right to psychiatry because that is not my area. That is right. just not my area. I do not prescribe medications. So I think it's yeah. really dangerous. It's very dangerous. I mean, we can laugh at it, but it is sincerely dangerous. You know what I mean? Well, and, and the reason why I laugh and, and I mean, I shouldn't be, but I, I've seen some people post articles about how coaching and therapy can have similar outcomes. And that scares me too, because there are articles like that out there, because I did look into it. And, and we have to be very cautious, because there is an aspect of, again, depending on how severe your symptoms are, or even your condition is, because some people just need someone to talk to, right? That's fine. Totally. Maybe you can get the same outcome by going to see a therapist, or especially if you're a high functioning individual or going to see a coach, that's fine. But in most cases, if if there is uh, a disorder or or a condition, then you're probably not going to get the same outcome with a coach. And and that's where I think, to your point, it becomes dangerous. And and yeah, yeah. There and, and there's a time. There are there are there are times and places for coaches. I'm not knocking that either. Um, I think. What are your goals? What are the goals of the person? You know, for example, I have a couple friends who uh, work in ADHD coaching, and so they're they're. Um, and I was like, "What is ADHD coaching? Like, that doesn't even make sense to me." But I read up on it, and there is apparently a certification process and all this kind of stuff, and it's regulated, which is you know really important. Um, and it's more somebody who's going to help somebody with ADHD, with true ADHD. You know, set reminders, make lists tend to tasks, uh, hold a schedule. That coaching is fantastic because somebody with true ADHD could absolutely benefit from a coach who's literally going to motivate them and coach them into building better habits to address their ADHD. So I don't want to make a blanket statement that I don't think coaching has a time and a, and a place and a purpose. It absolutely does. But like you said, it depends on the individual, the pathology, the treatment goals, what are we trying to accomplish here? You know, I think, listen, the more the merrier, it's kind of like we also have case managers, you know, case managers, they might only have a, a, not only, but they might just have, yeah, a bachelor's degree, but that doesn't mean their job isn't just as important. They mm -hmm. are managing the case. Does that mean they're evaluating, diagnosing and treating? No, but they can hold the case together. You know, as, ever, as long as everybody understands that there's a role and a place and they stay in their lane, the more the merrier. I'm all for it. Give me a coach, yeah. give me a psychiatrist, give me a psychologist, give me a therapist, give me a, a, a couples counselor, give me all of it, you know? But we have to know, you know, I know when I need to refer out. Like for right. example, I, the other day I got um, somebody with anorexia. I, I'm not well versed on eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I'm just not know the basics from schooling, but I wouldn't want to do that patient a disservice and say like, mm -hmm. yeah, give me, I'll do it. No, that's not fair to the patient. Let me find you somebody who treats eating disorders and let me refer out. And I think if we all learn to do that in a more harmonious way, because at the end of the day, it's about the patient. It's about, yeah. you know 100%. what I mean? Yeah. And I think the responsibility lies with people too, right? To be sure, like it's good to help, but you have to be aware of, you know, often you can make it worse, right? So, right. so being aware of that and and to your point when there are regulations involved it, it keeps things in control uh and unfortunately with the coaching business there's no real regulations often involved um but as people if you're listening i think it's also your responsibility to be aware of where you're seeking help and and who you're going to and, and doing your due diligence because um yeah to your point you you have to be aware of um a lot of these things especially if, if you want the right help 
Yeah, and as a consumer, there's nothing wrong with asking. You know, what's your education? What's your license? Um, you know, where, who are, which state are you licensed in, or which country are you licensed in? What board of ethics do you follow, or all, or what kind of uh, certifications do you have? There's nothing wrong with asking that. You know, even for medical providers, or if you're going to a dermatologist, do you want a board certified dermatologist? You know, those are all in place for a reason. Um, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with, with looking at that and asking about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is, uh, this has been a great conversation, Lena. Always, uh, I, I enjoy your passion and, and, Thanks for uh, that. <laughs> but, uh, for, I know you've shared a lot in the past, but like for listeners that do want to get a hold of you, reach out to you, what are some ways they can do that? Um, yeah. And thanks for kind of, I always love talking to you and I, I love watching your stuff on social media. You, you seem to have this like awesomely calm demeanor. It's like the opposite of me and this, you know, very insightful stuff. And I love that you're furthering your education. Like that's so awesome. So thank you. Um, let's see. Uh, my website is, uh, www.risepsychological.com. My Instagram, I have the longest Instagram handle on the planet. It's also rise psychological services. I think there's some underscores in there. Um, and I cross post on YouTube rise psychological services there as well. So there's, yeah, no, I've, I've shared your, uh, info in the past, but I will as well in this, uh, in the show notes for this episode, but yeah, thank you again for coming on and having this conversation with me. I've learned a lot. And what I've also learned is I don't know a whole lot. So <laughs> I think hopefully people can realize that too, uh, especially if, you're stepping out into unknown territory uh, as, as we have established in this episode. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to another episode. As always, please subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy the episodes or leave a comment in the comment section. I always love hearing from you. Thank you again. And until next week.